our new bestie has changed how we track our investments. Why have over 400,000 investors chosen ShareSite? It's simple. This online investment dashboard for your investment portfolio supports over 500,000 stocks, ETFs, and funds, plus integrated with more than 200 platforms, ensures your entire investment portfolio is organized and accessible in one place. Move beyond the limited insights from brokerage statements. ShareSite offers a comprehensive view of your financial performance, including analyzed reports, dividend gains, and the impact of currency fluctuations, all through intuitive graphs and visualizations. But here's the best part. For the investee besties out there, ShareSite is offering a special deal. Save four months when you purchase an annual premium plan. It's time to dive deep into performance metrics, streamline tax reporting, and share your portfolio with ease. Join the link in the episode description to sign up to ShareSite now and transform your investment experience. Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest. Today you're joined by your host Sim and with me is the amazing Olivia Coates-James. She is an incredible guest that we have today and we are so excited to have her here to chat about some of the amazing things that she has achieved. Now, before we get into today's show, let me just give you a little bit of background about Olivia. She was born in New Zealand and she has been voted the Young Business Leader of the Year by Shanghai-based International Profession Women's Society. She founded Luna Naturals, which is a company that does menstrual care. They do products that are often toxin-free. They do liners. They do period cups. It has become such a global success and they often do a lot of education and webinars around the world for women. But what's really amazing is that Olivia has helped to destigmatize any and everything to do with menstruation in Asia. And if you are from Asia, or if you have a little bit of like a clue as to how things go, it is very hard and it is very taboo still to talk about these things. So to start a social enterprise that has honestly made huge waves, we wanted to hear not just about how her business goes, but how she invests her money, how she's found trying to navigate, you know, hustle culture, particularly being a young person. And honestly, this one is one for the ages. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Before we get into the show, a huge thank you to HSBC for powering this week's episode. 80% of money media tell women to spend less and make them feel bad about money. Yet more than 67% of women want to learn about their finances and grow their wealth. We are so proud to be partnering with HSBC as they pave the way for financial well-being and diversity, which aligns with our mission of empowering women. An integral part of HSBC's mission is to empower and support each customer with their unique wealth needs, whenever and wherever they are. So whether you're at the very beginning of your wealth creation phase and taking your first steps in investing, or you're starting to think about passing your wealth and values to the next generation, HSBC can connect you to global opportunities at every stage of your wealth journey. Jump onto the link in the description to find out more. All right, back to the show. 
So firstly, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. This has been a long time coming, shall we say. But Olivia, I wanted to start off just by asking you something a little bit personal on your journey to get to where you are today, specifically to do with your business, because it is absolutely phenomenal. It's not something that a lot of people can say that they've achieved. So our audience would love to hear you just spill the tea a little bit. For sure, Sim. So my journey is such a personal one and one that I know is shared by so many others. Almost every woman that I've met shares a similar story to me when it comes to my menstrual health journey, which is the journey that led me to start Luna. So I'm going to give you the the condensed version, obviously, but let me take you back to my mid-20s. I was living in Hong Kong, doing something totally unrelated to entrepreneurship. And I can't remember the exact moment, but I, I started to become increasingly frustrated with the fact that I was struggling with menstrual symptoms that by that stage I'd been struggling with for over a decade. So uh, just a few of them I'll share now. I, when I was younger, uh, experienced incredibly heavy bleeding. So sometimes I would wear not one, but two pads at a time and even have to change those within one hour, which nobody told me was kind of abnormal. I kind of was led to believe that I was just one of the unlucky ones. That heavy bleeding was tied to other things like cyclical acne, which was incredibly debilitating from a mental health standpoint as well. You know, unfortunately, I did get teased at school and and in university too. So I guess that symptom really affected my mental well-being as opposed to my physical health, like some of the other symptoms. You know, I got recurring yeast infections. I basically just wasn't having a very good time when it came to my menstrual health. And there I was in my mid-20s thinking, how is this persisting in my life? This surely can't be my fate for the next 30 odd years. And what started as honestly just very casual conversations with at the time women around me in Hong Kong really started to evolve into, uh, I guess you could call it community building, as I became more and more aware of how prevalent these shared issues were in the lives of so many people around me. I started putting together, I guess, more formal workshops and group sessions without me professing to be an expert of any kind, but honestly, just inviting people to come and share their experiences. And in 2016, I got a job in Shanghai. I moved there with a branding agency. I was, guess I was around 25 at the time. And by this stage, my interest in menstrual stigma had evolved into what I kindly refer to as a full-blown obsession, truly. If, you know, if I wasn't hosting a focus group or a workshop, you know, I was thinking about it, I was planning it. And it was really the strength of that community that formed, that, that powered me into what is Luna today. I realized that regardless of where our attendees were from, their cultural backgrounds, their educational backgrounds, we were all united by this same fear and shame and confusion. And I remember distinctly around 2017, I actually started to talk to people who had experienced menopause, my mother included, 
And it was having those conversations that really cemented in me the need to change this issue, because, of course, the same words and experiences were being used by women at that stage of their life as well. So my eyes were really open to the status quo, whereby, you know, at no stage do we graduate from that, that shame and that confusion that I just mentioned. I started to think about how I could, could solve this issue. Obviously, the community was doing so much at the time and the education that we were providing, getting guest speakers in to come and dismantle some of these stigmas as well was really, really helpful But I suppose it was when my attention turned to the role of the so-called feminine care industry in this stigma that I realized I needed to add that product element to the value proposition. So I started to, I hadn't thought, uh, even after a year of doing this kind of research and community building, I still hadn't thought about the products I was using, which goes so far in, in showing how I guess, blind we are as consumers, as women, as menstruating people to this part of our lives. And it was upon learning that even the pads and tampons that I was using actually contained synthetics, that I immediately stopped using them. And miraculously, or perhaps not miraculously, but it felt miraculous at the time, my recurring yeast infections actually stopped. And so I realized in that moment that I had actually been blaming my body for a really debilitating experience that was being caused by the products I was using. So as you can imagine, it was then that the kind of the vision and the solution became clear. A brand that creates the products that we need and deserve that are better for our bodies. And then as I learned more about sustainability, the planet as well, but really underpinned by education, community and purpose, which at the time I just felt was so, so lacking on a global scale. I mean, you look at the industry now and admittedly there has been a rise in disruptive brands who've seen opportunity in this space. But at the time in 2017-18, there really were only a couple of players and they certainly weren't as far as I knew, um, you know, here in Asia. So it felt like there was a really strong opportunity for us to come in and, and fill that need. And I suppose uh, as our business has evolved, so has our value proposition, our core values and our mission remains the same. But, you know, I think one thing that's really important and unique to Luna in our markets is that we decided around 2020. So I guess a year, half a year after we launched that we didn't just want to disrupt the category. So we didn't just want to disrupt the, again, so-called feminine care industry. We really wanted to disrupt the stigma at its source. And we felt like the best thing to do with that and from the insights we'd seen in our community was, was take an institution-first approach. And by that, I mean serving the individual remains the end goal, but working within businesses and schools and universities to provide services and programs to, as I said, really disrupt that stigma. So what we've managed to do now is, I I guess, we're the leading provider of B2B menstrual health services in, in Asia Pacific. We provide products through our dispenser system in bathrooms of hundreds of companies and schools across the region. And alongside that, we we work on programs that look at policies and communications within these institutions to ensure that the menstrual health needs of, of individuals are seen and met. So, 
you know, we, we, like I said, we've evolved, of course, over the last few years. And I think that that approach is really alongside our, our products, our, our kind of special source. It's such an amazing story to hear just off the bat. And I have to say my favorite kind of people or my favorite kind of business owners slash people are the people that go, this has happened to me. And now I'm going to start my own solution because I cannot for the life of me find something to deal with these yeast infections or I cannot for the life of me find something that's going to help me find mm. you know, sustainable products that don't make me feel mm. bad. It takes a person to recognize it. It takes a different kind of person to action it and turn it into such an amazing company. So, you know, huge congratulations, hats off to you. I can tell that sustainability is quite a large part of what you do. And it's quite a large part of the brand itself. So I wanted to ask perhaps more of a personal question. How do you think sustainability kind of fits into your attitude when it comes to, you know, your personal wealth or your investment strategy? Because it's such a big, you know, part of the brand, a part of you. Do you find that shifts or like trickles into the way you manage your own Mm. money? It's a really incredible question. And my attitude has changed so drastically in regards to what we're talking about in terms of sustainability with responsible consumption, but also my wealth management as well. So I haven't always been sustainability minded. Truly, when when we were working on Luna in the early days, I would say that I was driven by this mission of health and well-being and sustainability. It's really wild to say this, but it wasn't really on my radar. It was And I guess just to go back a little bit, the first product that I raised funding for was a plastic applicator tampon with an organic cotton core, which to me was going to be the healthiest, easiest to use option on the market. But before we even got to full production, I had learned so much about sustainability and the impact of plastic on the environment that I had to make you know, quite a difficult business decision, but an easy ethical decision to go to my board and say, look, I know you invested in this star product, but I, we can't bring this to market. We need to find another way. And I'm really lucky. And I say this to people I'm sort of giving advice to about investment all the time. You know, I I had investors who shared my values and vision for the future. So once we kind of highlighted to them the issues at hand, they were on board with that decision. So I think looking back, my approach to my finances was equally probably unsustainable and and lacked that consciousness that I have today. And when I think about sustainability, a word that I really closely tie to it is longevity, of course. You know, we're thinking about the future and what we want that to look like. And so for me, the way I look at managing my money now, it's really got to have that intentionality behind it and that consciousness. And I'm really fascinated by learning and applying the rule of thumb whereby you spend in a way that represents your values. And it's probably something I've only really been able to think about. I mean, I want to say even in the last six months, truly, It might be worth me giving a bit of background about the lunar journey in terms of the challenges we've had to navigate. I mean, it comes as no surprise to you, I'm sure, that things were really, really wild over the last few years for obvious reasons. You know, it was difficult to, I felt difficult to plan even sort of like a quarter in advance because you never knew what was around the corner. 
And obviously in 2022, the first six months of the year, while it felt like the rest of the world was slowly moving on from COVID, here in Hong Kong and in Shanghai, where we also have operations, it was the worst time of the pandemic for us. We had the fifth wave of COVID, which you know devastated some of our revenue channels here. We had the Shanghai lockdowns, which were also incredibly impactful to what we were trying to do. So I would say even in the last six months, since we've been able to establish some stability with Luna, kind of, if we can call it post-COVID, it's really then that I've been able to have the mental space to think about myself, my finances and my future. Because, I mean, we launched the business, I guess, three and a half years ago. But as you can tell from my story, I've been in the trenches thinking about Luna now for seven years. And I guess I my future has never really been something that I've thought too closely about. It's always been Luna's future. So today I'm, you know, excited to explore what my own approach to my spending, my pathway to continued financial stability will be. You mentioned earlier that you're trying even, you know, with your spending to make it as sustainable Mm. as possible. Do you have like an example of maybe some changes or things that you purchase where you just, you know, maybe it's a little bit more costly, but it is more sustainable and you don't like, you know, necessarily feel guilty Mm -hmm. about it. Do you have any of those? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I spend very much money, I have to say. (laughs) And I'm lucky because I love clothes shopping, but I love clothes shopping in the context of thrift shops and charity shops. That to me is not about necessarily the end purchase. It's about the entire process of finding something for a bargain that you love so I've loved doing that since I was like 11 12 years old so and I think with my purchases now if we go back to kind of the value proposition I'm looking now for example at a wall in in my apartment and it's full of I guess art pieces they're not expensive but each one of them has been created by a local artist that perhaps Luna has worked with or that I've met you know, artists, mostly female artists that I really want to champion. And I think those small investments over the last kind of few years are things that I'm really proud of. And that's where I sort of say I like to apply that kind of spending according to your values. Like, who do I want to uplift? What makes me happy? And who in the process can I also kind of champion and give back to with my spending too? Oh, I love that. Value-based spending is so fun, but to value-based spend with artwork, like I can only imagine how beautiful (laughs) your apartment looks. That's fantastic. Taking it back even further and just getting a little bit deeper into like where these values or views kind of came from, what was your money mindset, you know, growing up as a child? And has that changed over time? Was like your family or the people around you, were they like quite heavy savers as well? And is that why you're not, you know, a huge spender? So the way I would describe my family's relationship with money is we've had periods of I would say stability. And by stability, I mean, we had enough, but we we never had more than enough, I would say. My dad, for example, worked well past retirement to ensure that my parents had a good enough nest egg. I think he probably would have continued to work had COVID sort of not 
forced him into retirement. My mum works really hard. She works at a hospital for the NHS back in the UK. And so we've definitely, I've been privileged to have a warm, loving, supportive home. But something that's relevant, I guess, to my journey with Luna, I never had sort of family wealth that I could bring into the mix for, I don't know, launching my business or even going to university. My summers since I was, I guess, 15 were spent, summers and winters were spent working really, really hard to have the money I needed to survive. So I guess work ethic is something that I've always really valued I work myself really, really hard, obviously, as as anyone with a business does, sometimes need to be pulled back slightly from that, which I'm learning to do myself. So I think when it comes to my relationship with money, I always knew that it empowered me. But I would also say that those years of, of working, summer jobs, winter jobs, I really developed this very steadfast desire and ambition to do something that really I I loved and energized me. And even back then, even if I couldn't get that from the jobs I was doing for financial gain, I would always have something on the side to, as I said, really energize me. So whether that was I was an avid writer and whether it was sort of writing on the side, writing for magazines or even participating in, I guess, like theatre. That was a big hobby of mine. So just making sure that I could have something to drive me and fulfill me. I had always dreamed of being able to combine the two. But truthfully, it took me a few years up until Luna, I guess, to actually be able to marry those two things together. Would you say growing up that sort of attitude of, you know, working for your money and kind of seeing that you had to put something in to get something out, has that kind of continued with you over time? Or do you feel like, you know, if you want to make more, you have to put in equally as much hard work or has that changed? I think it's a really interesting question. I look at my, I guess, last 10 years, let's say. Um, so I'm 31 at the moment. And I, as you know, started my my lunar journey in my early to mid 20s. And I kind of think back of, of that as there being two eras to this journey. And this idea, bear with me, because I'm going to take you on a little bit of a semantic journey that's not completely ironed out. But I think a lot about wording and how language reflects how we feel about things. And I I mean, we do uh, workshops about this at Luna for our corporate clients. But I think language is really, really important when we look at how when we talk about particularly women and how women are stereotyped in business. And so I was described, I guess, a year ago by somebody on a podcast, actually, as being very hungry. And that wording really sparked a thought in my mind. And this does relate to my approach to to money and finances. I guess I thought there are so many ways we can describe people in business. We have ambitious, we have driven, we have hungry. There are many, many different ways we can talk about it. And I would say that hungry really defined the first few years of me building Luna. It kind of highlights, I guess, you sort of almost running on empty, almost a bit of a reckless approach, not to your business, but to how you care for yourself and your own future planning and stability. You know, I was powered 
at the time by nothing other than my, as I said earlier, my, my mild, let's call it obsession and my desire to make change in this space. And I guess during that time, one key takeaway is that I learned that I, I didn't actually need much. I, at the time, was spending around 3,000 RMB on rent, so around, I guess, like 3,500 USD a month, so it wasn't much. You know, I wasn't spending lots on food. I was so deep in my work that I didn't exactly have a social life, and things suffered, of course. You know, I ended a relationship because of it. I didn't see friends. I, I didn't see family as much as I wanted to, but I had that hunger, and how I want to think about myself moving forward and my journey is rather than being hungry it's more about being driven and I think about being driven as as moving towards one kind of strategic end goal and I need to figure out what that is I'm, I'm in the process of that now and obviously that's not going to be fixed that can change but it's about driving towards a goal and figuring out what you need to fuel you. And for me, having not had loads of or, or really any spare like personal wealth during this, this process of building Luna, I've realized that, that the fuel I need, as well as like sort of people and, and you know, additional resources, it, it really is financial stability and the ability to invest in the things that increasingly I care about. You know, I guess when I started this journey, I didn't have any dependents. And though I don't have children yet, I have parents who are getting older who I want to look after. I have a sibling who I'd like to support who's still quite young. And, and so your goals and your ambitions change over time. And I'm in this period of my lunar journey where I know that in order to keep going, although my drive and love for what I do has not changed, you can't run on empty. You really, really need that fuel. Would you say that hungry is a nice way of describing someone's desire to grow in business? Because I feel like I'd be a little bit offended. Yeah. I'd be like, hungry. Yeah. I mean, I used to probably love it. I would lap it up a few years ago. And I, I really do mean sort of like before Luna started, I probably, mm -hmm. I really drank the Kool-Aid of the hustle culture, you know, and I <laughs> guess I kind of had to in a way, because I wasn't living a life that was particularly sustainable. So the hustle culture felt like it fit my narrative at the time, but I would not endorse anybody sort of going after, as I said, that, that hustle culture firstly, and I think, you know, hungry again kind of suggests that you're you're running on empty. And I think there are there are other ways to describe what somebody should be in order to create a successful and as we were saying, sustainable business and life. For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone powered by Stripe. Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone and the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it, from local pop-ups to global retailers, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup that takes minutes, not days.
So how can Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple. Increase revenue, expanded reach, and enhance customer experience. It's a win-win-win. To learn more about how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. Style. I love that. I think there's a lot to be said about how on one hand hustle culture feels like a necessity for a startup founder and on the other hand you know the impacts that it has on us long term when it comes to advice that you've been given one in business but also in your personal wealth journey what would you say have been the best pieces of advice that have been you know sent your way that you've really stuck with I think when it comes to your relationship with money I see so many people really moving the goalposts when it comes to what will make them happy. And I see that as a, as a danger that I really want to avoid as perhaps, you know, I grow the business, I accumulate more personal wealth. I want to remain really grounded in what my values are and not keep moving those goalposts around what will make me content. I think that's a really dangerous way to be. And I was trying to actually verbalize this to my boyfriend and he then happened to stumble upon actually an Oprah Winfrey quote that I thought really defined this. It said, if you look at what you have, you will always have more. If you look at what you don't have, you will always feel you have less. And I just really like that because I think it's really important to remain ambitious and driven and I guess have goals that you're striving towards, but not lose sight of the fact that what do we really need to be happy and well? And for me, that doesn't look like a lot of material things. Now, I'm not sitting here saying like, you know, I don't buy nice things. As I said earlier, I like to invest in you know, affordable art. I like to go shopping when it's brands or stores that that I find interesting, but I don't want to find myself moving those goalposts as my success increases. Have you found yourself moving them in the past? I have not found myself moving them recently, but I have certainly found myself comparing myself to others and allowing that to make me feel insecure and lesser. And that was true probably up until a few years ago. Maybe, if I'm being totally honest, a symptom of my childhood, a bit of background, I got a scholarship to a really nice school that my parents worked really, really hard to, I guess, allow me to to go to. And perhaps sort of being on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of income and what that meant for me sort of engaging with certain activities and the people I surrounded myself with. I guess I admit that I didn't perhaps have the strength to not compare myself and not let that impact me. So having experienced that, now being aware of that, it's something I'm wary about again as I become more successful and the business grows. It's so interesting. And thank you for being so vulnerable and and sharing that because, you know, from the outside, it's like a successful woman who's a Forbes 30 under 30, who has her own brand that she's been doing since she was in her, you know, 20s. Like what an incredible journey. Mm. And yet, you know, we still all feel this level of 
or we've at least in the past still been guilty of like comparing ourselves and like oh well that person did something even bigger or that person had even more success and you're right I love that Oprah Winfrey quote I've never heard it before I'm going to be applying that yeah it's a good one we have my boyfriend to thank for that so thank you Doug <laughs> but I think it's worth saying that that this comparison it's it's true for everyone I, I know that but I do think for women it looks a little different. I see it in men, and and forgive me if I if I'm guilty of making generalizations here, but th- these are my observations. I see comparison in men that I think stems from more of a kind of a toxic ego issue in society, which I would love not to exist for the men in my life as well. I think that's really dangerous and hard to navigate. For women, I see this comparison the result of of there still not being enough seats at the table for us and and perhaps looking at each other through that competitive lens. And I mean, the spaces I exist in now because I've carved them out and obviously I am around people with similar values to me, I don't see it as much, but I know it's out there. And I think it's important we're aware of it and we work even harder to dismantle both of those things that I just said. So, you know, toxic traits of toxic masculinity that men have to navigate and those feelings of there not being enough space for women, we need to shift as well. On the topic of the difference between, you know, and again, this this is generalizing, but it's really interesting. On the topic of the difference between men and women, when it comes to wealth, do you think we have a difference in how we view like receiving wealth or how we view reaching wealth? Mm-hmm. Do you think, you know, in your line of work, you probably get to meet a lot of people that are either business owners, investors, and therefore perhaps maybe have more than the average person. Have you noticed a difference between Mm. the two? I'm still trying to decide how much the following experience says about the startup ecosystem in general. But let me explain to you uh, some insights from a, a dinner I found myself at about a year ago. It was mostly women founders. It was here in Hong Kong. There were a couple of guys there also with their own business. And it was really interesting. There were people there from many, many different cultural upbringings. I think one of our friends there was is Shanghainese. We had someone from Hong Kong, someone from France, and a couple from the UK. So it really was interesting to all come to a very similar conclusion when it came to finances and business with the fact that everyone was from such different upbringings. But we found that the women at the table all shared these experiences of being the first ones to take a pay cut. And that wasn't even necessarily because the business sort of the cash flow was in a dangerous position. It was a pay cut to hire somebody else because you thought that was like the best thing to nurture the business. Whereas the two, and and again, my sample size is small here, but I think there are some ways this translates into a, a broader societal issue. But the men had never done this and they couldn't get their heads around it. They were saying, but you are the heart and soul of the business. Why are you taking a cut to bring somebody else on board? You need to be fed. You need to be sustained. And I just found it fascinating that at one point we had all done that. And a few years ago, an advisor did say to me, you've got to stop doing this. You might feel like you are so motivated and that Luna 
is your be all and end all right now. And that that will never, never change. And that, you know, these lifestyle sacrifices that you're making will be worth it in the end. And that I believe to be true. Of course, that's why we do this as founders. But he just highlighted to me that founder burnout is real. And if you keep making cuts for yourself, you are not able to deliver the best value that you can. You know, to use a cliche, you can't pour from an empty glass. But I think that's really, really apt here. So I find that perhaps the women founders around me, not all of them, but at certain stages in our business, we've been more willing to, for better or worse, make cuts to our own personal financial well-being to bring more people, more resources on board. Whereas the men that I spoke to were wanting to ensure that they were sustained, that they were fed in order to deliver the very best results that they personally could. And both of those are really valuable approaches. You know, I I wonder if you've got any feedback on that. Have you seen it in the people you've spoken to? I have. And it's so interesting. I can add one more number to your like N of three of how many people have done this. But I was speaking to a female founder who does something very similar to us and she hadn't reduced her salary, Mm. but she had kept it low. I think she was the sixth highest paid employee in her company. It ended up having a negative impact for her because when she was looking to get Mm. funding, the investors kind of said to her, well, the amount that you've cut down, like if you're earning, let's say, 90000 mm. a year, but someone in your shoes should be earning 200000 a year, we're actually going to remove that off your company's profit because a male founder, if he stepped in, he wouldn't accept that kind of pay. Mm. I've seen it before. It happens, absolutely. So the negative consequences of this, there are many. Yeah, it's terrible. In terms of Going forward, though, for someone that is listening in and, you know, is very inspired by your journey, but doesn't really know where to begin, there's not a lot of transparency around financial planning when you're starting a business. How did you get into that? Because you were quite young Mm. when you began. So was it through your degree that you picked it up or was it just through trial and error? How would you go around starting the financial planning journey of a business that you wanted to create? I love this question because no, I did not learn any financial planning through my English literature degree. (laughs) 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 And like I said, I'd never had any personal wealth to manage in my early twenties or before. So I remember when I decided that I needed to pitch for investment and I I never had, I suppose I bootstrapped the early days of my business in the sense that I was spending every penny I earned on, you know, the focus groups and the research and so on. But in order to launch Luna, there's no way I could have afforded to go into product development and production. So raising funds was something I had no experience in whatsoever, but absolutely needed to do. I guess I googled how to write an investment pitch deck I was not lucky it was great because by that stage I'd had those years of community building and essentially research so I had lots of great data and proof of concept but when it came to the finances I don't know what I did but I do know that it was not very productive I had a few really awkward failed first pitches where I just obviously couldn't answer the nitty gritty stuff that you need to as somebody raising funds. So I hit pause. I realized that I don't have the skill set to do this alone. 
And I started spending my time looking for somebody to help me. And again, when I look back, I don't know what I would have searched on LinkedIn. I must have written <laughs> like financial advisor investment or just some key buzzwords. And I found a few women in Shanghai that fits the profile. And I went for coffees with them. One of them I just immediately clicked with. Her name is Grace Her. She is an amazing CFO. She's helped raise huge amounts of money for some very fast-growing China, Asia-based startups. She's brilliant. And she basically loved the concept and agreed to help me map everything out, navigate conversations with investors. And I would pay her a very reasonable percentage of what I was raising if we were successful. So... Grace, I'm delighted to say, sits on my board of directors today. You know, she's been with me from day one. And I use this story as a way to emphasize the first thing that we must do as founders with a dream, with a vision, is think, what are my strengths? What am I bringing to the table? And what gaps do I need to plug with other people? And that's what I did in that situation. And of course, I am very open about the fact I'm sure I wouldn't have raised a penny of investment without Grace's support. It takes a lot of self-awareness to say that. And, and it's just honesty. Mm. I think it's amazing that because, you know, you, you could have gone down the other route and gone, let me do a crash course on how to, you know, do pitch yeah. decks and, and speak to investors and it's really helpful and not a lot of people that we've had a chance to speak to are that mm. open and honest about it so again this has been you know so helpful and there's been so many great nuggets i wanted to deep dive a little bit more into your personal investment journey i think from what i can tell a lot of your time and energy and resources has been pulled into your business your baby when it comes to your personal finance where is that standing do you spend time to invest or have you kind of just you know put all of your eggs in, into luna so linked in fact to the last question that we had i would say that everything I've done with Luna so far, and there have of course been times where I haven't been able to keep this up as I would have liked to, but everything I've done, I've looked at in fact, as a crash course. So I've got folders that are named sort of like advice from Grace, for example, and then other advisors and investors. And one day I'll sit down and pull this all together in a really organized way. Turn it into a book, yeah, please. Yeah, you should, shouldn't I? Okay. <laughs> project for the future. It's that learning. And, and I would like to emphasize for people wanting to start their own business or even just looking at how they invest their money, you know, speak to other people is such an obvious, but such a key way of learning, but be really meticulous again, in ways I haven't always been meticulous about writing down these insights and, and packaging up in a way that feeds into your strategies. So my approach to investment is I've got a sort of three-year plan. You're right. I have not started my investment journey yet. I've had all my eggs in, in one basket, but over the last six months, I've been kind of able to, to think about the future. And I have sat down and I've thought about everything I know from my lunar journey that would allow me to make investments, I think, in early stage startups, because that's what I know and that's what I love. 
everything I know and everything I don't yet know. And I have been very clear with some of my investors and advisors that that will be something I will be asking them more about over the next six months, a year. So I, over the next year, want to do two things, learn about how to make those calls on, as I said, investment opportunities with a focus on early stage investments that I could perhaps even, you know, give some advice and and guidance to, because I love doing that as well. Obviously, start saving following year, continue to save, continue to learn. (laughs) And by year three, I want to start deploying some of that capital in, you know, ideas and, and propositions that I get sent. Because at the moment, you know, I do spend my time mentoring early stage founders and and sharing my advice, which is a lot of what not to do as much as it it is what to do. So if I could tie that in the future to my future financial stability, then that I know would make me so, so happy and so fulfilled. Firstly, as someone that loves like getting advice, I much rather prefer the what not to do than what to do because everyone knows what to do. We all know that we should wake up early, be disciplined, like, you know, don't get distracted, mm-hmm. time block. And you're like, okay, but tell me the mistakes. Like, tell me the silly things you said to investors <laughs> yes. when you were pitching, you know, to, tell me the font you used on your deck. Like, that's... I will never tell you that. I'm taking that to the grave. <laughs> As long as it wasn't like Comic Sans, I think we're good. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's amazing. It's so wonderful to hear how you've got like this sort of system set up. And if we can be a little bit nosy, are there any industries in particular that you're looking to learn more about that you want to invest your money into? I would love, there's, there's many I'd love to learn more about just because I am so excited about how femtech is taking off it just makes me so thrilled as somebody who was pitching for investment in 2018 and was turned away so many times by being told the market's not ready for this no one wants to talk about this topic to see just how many solutions now are coming out to support the well-being of of women and other people that menstruate and reproductive health what you name it menopause well-being this is the space that my passion truly lies in. So whilst I would also like to evolve my understanding of industries outside my own, there's so much happening here that I I don't even have got a strong grasp on all of the movements that's going on. This is, I believe, where I want to apply my efforts, certainly for the next three to five years. And for people listening in that are maybe, you know, in similar minds to you and you know, maybe they haven't heard of Femtech until now and they're, they're really interested and inspired because let's be honest, it's a very inspiring mm. story. Do you find that Femtech is a space that is, you know, got a, a lot of growth happening or do you think, you know, some of us might have missed the boat? No, I think if you've got a strong product, a strong solution, you haven't missed the boat. I'd say we said it at the beginning of this podcast and I, I'm not here to say that you can't make a successful business and you can't earn money doing something that you're not personally passionate about. I know people that have done that, but I think in this space, you have to be invested. It's people's health, it's people's well-being, it's societal attitudes. You know, you have to, I think, have the right motivation going into it. And under that umbrella of Femtech, there are so many different kind of sub areas 
some way more saturated than others. Like I said earlier, I think the menstrual brand space is incredibly saturated now. That's not to say that there aren't going to be people who really excel, but it's really where we've worked to, as I said earlier, differentiate ourselves from other players in the category. But take a look at, you know, anything from you know, abortion access, depending on which market you're in, such a fast moving, impactful space, reproductive health, you know, reproductive health in relation to LGBTQ plus communities. There's just so many things that you could look at and find an area that you are personally passionate about, have a personal connection to and make difference in. I really believe that. Or look for, of course, you know, another option is look for companies that are just starting out join us their first couple of hires that's a really amazing way to go as well if you have an entrepreneurial mindset but you feel you don't have that idea oh that would be a good one and for those that maybe have capital but perhaps not the time do you think it's too late for investors to jump into femtech or do you think there's a lot of room for that no definitely not i mean femtech there's so many predominantly female founded businesses within femtech and we know the statistics around how much funding goes into women-owned businesses. It's increasing, again, depending on which market you're in and which industry you're in, but there's just more capital needed all the time. So you have not missed the boat. If you're sitting on a pot of cash and you are looking for somewhere to apply it, definitely check out some of the movement happening in this space. I find that is very helpful because What we keep seeing in terms of investors is very similar to, I think, what happened maybe five years ago with consumerism, where consumerism became very like impact focused or like, I want to put my money into things that I want to support, the small businesses I care about. And we're seeing investors now doing that, especially female and especially young investors going, cool, you know, I invest in the share market. Some of them might invest as angel investors where they, you know, invest privately in companies like yours. And It's just so fantastic to hear that there's so much amazing work and hard work that's been put into this space. So a huge thank you for your time. It has been absolutely wonderful hearing your journey, hearing how this has all come about. And for those that are listening at home and going, you know, I want to do this. This is like my passion. I find the impact that we can have on women's health or just femtech in general as something that is so important and vital to me. How do they follow your journey? Where's the best place to reach you? I'm personally not active on Instagram, but I do use LinkedIn a lot. So find me on LinkedIn, olivia.coates.james. And please do also follow my company on any social media platform. We've got Instagram, we've got LinkedIn as well. We'd, We'd love to build the community for any listeners out there. I think that is so fantastic. Thank you again, Olivia, so much for your time. We have had so much fun hearing your journey and we cannot wait to see where this takes you. Thank you so much, Sam. Before we go, thank you again to HSBC for not only powering this episode, but for the rest of the season. Don't forget to check out the link in the description to find out more. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.